over the years, I've taken all kinds of uh, jobs, and uh, as I was looking at our text for today, I was thinking about that a lot. Uh, I thought, uh, when I was younger, I thought a lot about what I want to do for a living. I really didn't start to think about that until after the Marine Corps. Uh, in the, I, I literally, I'm not one of those to say that I felt like I needed to be so brave and serve my country. It wasn't that. I actually went to the Marine Corps so I wouldn't have to choose what, I'd ha- you know, what I'm supposed to be when I grow up. I thought, well, I'll just go be a Marine for a while. They'll tell me what to do, just like my parents do. And then I can postpone growing up for just a little while longer. And that worked for a season. And then I eventually got out. And I began to look for all kinds of jobs and searching just for what I wanted to do for a living. And there's a lot out there. And I was fortunate. I had parents who had raised me uh, uh, saying all the time, you can do anything you put your mind to. If you work hard at it, you can figure out how to do it or how to get it done. And I had watched my mom who over the years, where my, where, whereas my dad had a uh, college education and was able to get into uh, uh, he worked for mobile for many years before it became Exxon Mobil, and for 35 years he carried the same job. And so uh, watching him, I, I couldn't relate to that because I, I didn't have a college education. But my mother, on the other hand, who had worked odd jobs until she had finally found herself in a position uh, when I was around high school or right in there where she got the opportunity to come in and work under a finance director at a city hall. And when that took place, she ran with it and did really well. And the irony is today that she now subconscious worked for so many cities and have established so many cities and working for them and has such a good reputation there that now she, she comes in now when they're in between people and she subcontracts her labor into the city and she loves it. She gets paid like twice as much just to come be uh, the gap in between the, their next employee. And she gets to show the cities what they're missing and where they need to go as well. And this, she has done all of this with a high school education. All of this with a high school education. So I always believed when she said I could do anything I wanted to put my mind to, I look at my mother's life. Well, I see that in her. I see that. And so I didn't always have the plan of being a pastor, believe it or not. That was not my plan. Uh, that was something God had a plan for. I actually would laugh about that and think that was kind of like never something that would never happen. It would be too bizarre for me to be that. Um, I didn't really, I was kind of aimless. I didn't know what I wanted to do. So I tried everything. I'm not going to lie. I like tried everything. I thought while I was young and in my 20s, I'm going to go try to do stuff just to see if I can do it. And and uh, yeah, I had to work to make ends meet. I had to to, to stay at these jobs for a little while, but for the most part, like I tried out a lot of things. Uh, uh, for instance, there was literally a time where I thought, you know, I can fix lawnmowers. I'll just be a lawnmower mechanic, and I'm going to try this job. I lasted two weeks. Turns out they have to run after you're done touching and messing with them. I, I, could, I could tear one down. Just putting it back together was really hard, apparently, and you might need to be a little bit smarter than I was to, to be a lawnmower mechanic. Uh, I actually tried being an EMT for a while, went to school for it up in Washington State uh, while I was also a volunteer fireman. They kind of helped pave that way, and I got to literally put on all the gear. I got to go fight a couple of fires. I got to ride the ambulance and fix people, and then what I realized, it was so soon after the Marine Corps when I had done this job that I was like, I don't think I want to see any more messed up, broken 
uh, not all right, bloody people. I don't think I want to do that anymore. I don't think that's where I'm at right now. While I thought it was neat to fight fires, I didn't like the ambulance part. I, I had seen enough of that in the Marine Corps that made me think, I don't want to see this the rest of my life. I, I, I remember doing a 48-hour stint in the hospital where we watched a woman die, and because she had a do not resuscitate, we had to watch her die, and then she would come back to life again, and then she would die and then she would come back to life again. And eventually she came back to life again and just stayed that way for a little while longer. But it was a bizarre thing. And I remember thinking, I don't, I don't think I want to do this. I, I don't think that's what I want to spend my whole life, like watching this or, or participating in this. And so I tried something else. I became uh, literally through my brother, I became a meter reader slash technician. And this, it was a decent job. It taught me a lot about people because I was a giver and a taker. I got to give you and turn your electricity on, and I took it when you didn't pay your bill. You know what? People don't like it when you cut their electricity off. They get really upset at you. I've had so many dogs sicked on me. I have had things thrown at me. I've had guns pulled on me, all for the sake of getting their electricity turned back on. But it really taught me a lot about people, and it was a fascinating job just to be an observer of people. Uh, uh, and so that was kind of a neat job. And then I got the opportunity to go be a CAD engineer. Now that sounds like a bizarre transition because it was. I went to church with a guy that says, I watch you. You're extremely teachable. I know that I could teach you how to do this and you have the right mentality to really prosper at this. And I didn't even own a computer at the time. I was like, what is CAD engineering? He said, computer-aided drafting. I don't own a computer. Oh, we can figure this out. And he encouraged me, and you know what? I figured it out, and it was one of the best jobs that I've ever had. And I, I found out I have a love and a passion for watching things start from nothing, built into something. I love seeing it work through the computer, but not only on the computer, I loved watching it on the manufacturing floor. It was, it was cool. It was neat. Neat job. But from there, because God was calling me, I was already starting to step out of this and into the ministry kind of and really running through there. And God began to push me into some other things and started doing oil and gas sales. I didn't, though I'd grown up and my dad had worked for an oil company, I didn't know a whole lot about oil and gas and how that worked. And I learned a lot about how that worked. I learned a lot about people too. Again, my, I, I used some of those past people skills to help me in sales and everything else. I would eventually go on to uh, work alongside a guy and we would create and manufacture trailers. Didn't know how to... I had to go learn, physically learn how to put VIN numbers on vehicles. I had no idea what VIN numbers, you know that every single letter and number in your VIN number means something? It's really significant. <laughs> I had to learn what every single letter and number meant in the VIN number so I knew how to number each trailer. I learned a lot in manufacturing. And then I, I went on to do some more sales. I did some Christian phone sales and worked for a Christian company that sold Bible studies to youth groups and things like that. And all of that was like really neat. And, and it gave me a lot of experience and, and a lot of things that I learned. And when I looked at our text today, I was reminded uh, of a few things that I've learned along the way about conversation, how to control conversation, how sales works and why what we read today is so important. Now, while working in all these different jobs, um, when you start to learn sales, you, you pick up sales. Uh, one of the things that they teach you is whoever is asking the questions is the one in, in the control of the conversation. I don't know if you've ever heard that, but the one who is asking the question is the one in control of the conversation. And it's a simple trick uh, uh, and one that basically steers us into 
if you're not careful, it'll stare you into whatever subject the person is trying to get you in. They'll, they'll, they'll ask a question because they're trying to lead you to some place, lead you to the obvious conclusion of that. And it's a part of sales. And we do this naturally all the time. We can't act ignorant of this because we do it all the time. We do it to our kids. You ask them a question to which you already know the answer to, don't you? Right? You do this to your kids. You do this to your coworkers when you're training coworkers. Now, is this what you should have been doing? Is, is this where you... We're supposed to be over here, or were you supposed to be? Oh, I was supposed to be. So you, so you, you knew the answer, but you're asking the question. You're trying to what? Teach them. You're trying to steer them in the right way, steer them in the right direction. And Jesus did this all the time when he was training his disciples, too. This is how he guided them into spiritual ideas and spiritual practices. So throughout this message, and every message you're going to ever hear from a preacher, you'll take notice now because you can expect that questions will be asked of you. Man, if you start to think back of any sermon that I've ever preached, at some point or another, I challenged you with a question. It's not that I don't know the answer to that question. You already know the answer to that question. But the fact that you asked yourself starts to get your brain working. It starts to roll the gears now. And you start thinking about the things you should be thinking about. And if we don't ask these questions, how will we ever be challenged in our hearts and challenged in our life? And if Jesus asks us a question to teach and train, then I then I think so much the church. So let's begin in Mark chapter 8. We'll start in verses 27. We'll go down to verses 38. And this is where we'll be today. If you're there, say amen. Amen, I like it. Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, who do people say that I am? Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say that you are one of the other prophets. Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. But Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then Jesus began to tell them that the Son of Man must suffer many terrible things and be rejected by the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of the religious law. He would be killed, but three days later he would rise from the dead. As he, walked, as he talked about this openly with his disciples, Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Jesus turned around and looked at his disciples, then reprimanded Peter. Get away from me, Satan. He said, you're seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then calling the crowd to join his disciples, he says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up your own, your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake and for the sake of the good news, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my message in these adulterous, sinful days, the Son of Man will be ashamed of that person when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Let's pray real quick. Father. Lord, as we uh, receive your words spoken into our hearts, there is no word from me that's going to be more powerful than your word read aloud. There is no sermon that I can preach that would be greater than your own words, God. Father, I pray that you take your words now and you plant them deeply within us. And Father, water it and you grow it, God. And let us see and bear the fruit of it in Jesus' name. Amen. So this question arrives after eight chapters of walking together. It wasn't an all-of-the-sudden sort of question. 
They had witnessed miracle after miracle, no doubt, right? They had fed thousands with only a few loaves of bread, a few fishes. They had watched as crowds flooded in to be all around them. And it's an appropriate question at this point because there has to be one thing they get right. They need to see and they need to know. They have to understand this, and that's this. Who do you say that I am? It's important. Who do you say that I am? This question just might be the single most important question that you are constantly being asked in your life. Listen, you are constantly being asked this question. But just the fact that that is happening, that you're constantly being asked, shows the difficulty in answering it. Because even Jesus realizes the pressure of the culture. This is why the first question he asks is not, who do you say that I am, but who do people say that I am? We must recognize this is more than a question. It is a cultural pull. It is the pull to believe as others do. Do you believe as others do? What do people say? That I am. Do you believe what they say I am? It's the cultural pull. It's the cultural pull to believe as others do, to listen to the culture as if it's some smart collective group. And listen, guys, we're always pitted against the culture in this line of questioning. The masses have a way of swaying us into spiritual and even cultural conformity. If everyone is to believe Jesus is only a prophet, then we have a tendency to think, well, they must know something that I might not. There is so many of them. And when that begins to happen, our faith wavers. Culture is powerful. It sways us. It it sways us in what we wear and how we talk and even how we worship. Just take a look at how the church keeps changing with every generational culture shift. I can tell you, that the preachers from the 80s, 40 years ago, would, would, they would have never imagined uh, these little skinny jean preachers in the pulpit today. They would, it would have blown their mind, along with all this fancy lighting and stage stuff and smoke and all these things, right? Listen, I've been to some worship events. This is true. This is true. Within the last six years, all right, I've been to some worship concerts and events where there were literally people eating nachos and corn dogs. In the middle of the worship, because of the place that they were holding, it wasn't inside necessarily a church. So they, they just launched the whole vending thing, and, and literally there's people eating nachos while the worship is playing. <laughs> I think it's easy to see how the culture leans into the church, how it sways us, and it becomes culturally okay for that to happen. Now, is this the case for the disciples? If it is, then, then what would it be for you? What does this city or this community or the surrounding communities say who Jesus is? What does Marble Falls, what does Granite Shoals, what does Kingsland say Jesus is? And listen, I think this, this area sees Jesus as meek. I think they see him as mild. I think all, they, they see him as all love and all grace with very little regard for the fruit of salvation and more really on the works of salvation you know, such as attending church and on a regular basis. A quick glance over Marble Falls and most here to, uh, appear to have come to Jesus for salvation, but little have gone on to live in sanctification, which is the walk of Christ. 
And the difference is that they talk of godly things, but they do not appear to live in a godly way. If Jesus longed for trees uh, that reproduce themselves like all trees do in nature, then our community here is already dying. Our culture here, while better than others, produces people who believe Jesus is the Son of God, but they do not live their life like they believe it. Rather, I would agree with the prophet Isaiah that most of the people here worship God with their mouth, but their hearts and life are far from God. Now this, again, is the power of the culture to exert its belief upon us. It's the power of the culture. It tugs at us in justification of lifestyle. We want to live in the way we want to live, and we want to do the things that our hearts desires. Is that so wrong? It can be. It can be. This constant pull of our hearts tugging at us to do what it wants to do butts us up against a Savior that asks us to take up our cross and let go of our way. Jesus calls us out from the deep recesses of our heart and begs us to be productive and fruit-bearing. And the only way we can do this is to separate ourselves from the world. And yet he does this while also giving us grace to make mistakes, praise God. We can't confuse grace, though, with acceptance. Let me say that again. Let us not confuse grace with acceptance yes you have freedom to do anything because the grace of God can save you from anything but to indulge in everything that doesn't produce righteous fruit is folly and quite simply in my opinion it's a waste of your time because your time is limited the culture works alongside the enemy here in keeping you preoccupied where you don't think about it. All you think about is what you want and never what Christ wants. I remember hearing a pastor one time say that. I had, he, he had said he was praying about this. Some, you might have heard this. He was praying about he's got a big church. He needed a bigger parking lot. He says, God, I need a bigger parking lot. I don't know what you're going to do these business around here, but maybe we need to knock a few down. So I'm going to have to pray some of these people need to leave or whatever and let me have this parking lot area so I can pack more people into this church. And God stopped him and says, you ever ask me what I want? We've already built what you wanted. When are we going to build what I want? And he goes, you know, I had never asked that question. Can I tell you the shock when I hear stuff like that? Like, I know I'm just a little small town, nobody, nothing preacher. I don't have a big thousand-person congregation. I, but I am so shocked that you can get to a thousand-person congregation and just start to ask the question, God, what do you want? As if it's the, he said it was the first time he'd ever asked God what he wanted. I can't fathom that. I can't understand that. But here's the thing is, Jesus <laughs> reminds us that there's going to be consequences for the things that we do. And he also reminds us that he is returning. Now, of course, this warning is only as powerful if you believe it. You must, and to believe it, you have to also believe in him. Which begs us to ask the second question, right? The question that really is the most important. Not what people uh, say that I am or what the culture says that I am or what anybody else says that I am. But who do you say that I am? Who do you say? Most would say 
Jesus is God. That's what he is. Jesus is Lord. I think if I went and asked people, they're like, oh, no, Jesus is the Son of God. I, I, I don't think I would have any trouble with that. But listen, I think you need to think careful before you answer because if that is also true, if you really believe that, then do you know what, you're, what that truly entails? Do you really fully understand? If Jesus is God, do you know what that means? If Jesus is Lord, if he is the Messiah, then our sight picture is narrowed down really in just to a couple of views. And both are, are the truth, but one is half. It's, it's not all the truth. It's some of the truth. And then you can have all the truth. And I think people live somewhere in between these two. The first view, and maybe this is the most obvious one, and maybe the most simple, it's the New Testament one. It's one where we see a gentle, a loving, a deeply compassionate God. One who has come as a beggar rather than a king. He's humble. He's a giver. He deeply has a heart for children. He cares for the poor and orphans. He loves widows. He's deeply troubled by those who are sick or who have diseased. He wants to set people who have demonic, who've been demonically possessed or controlled. He wants to set them free. He walks with 12 other young men who, uh, who are also called to walk alongside him, and he calls them his friends. Awesome. He deeply cares for them. He spends a great deal of time with them. We see throughout the Gospels that he is committed to finishing what he came here to do. He's a man who knows what he's here for. He came to destroy sin and to set free those who are enslaved by sin. And who is that? All of us. Amen. This was his mission. This is what he came to do with singular focus. So much so that we can see his determination by simply watching him keep his mouth shut while he's falsely accused. Now, I don't know how many people can do that, if I'm being honest. How many of you can just sit there and be quiet while somebody's saying something that you know is not true about you? If that don't show you that he is set apart and different from everyone else. Not only did he keep his mouth shut, but even when they beat him. Even when they whipped him. Even when they pulled out his hair and chunks of his beard. He kept his mouth shut and walked as best as he could to the cross. And he finished what he was born to do. What was started in the book of Genesis. And at the end of his life, his last words, it is finished. Jesus is a determined man. Jesus, for all you strong-willed people out, Jesus is a strong-willed, determined man. From his cross, grace now flows to the highways and the hedges, to the wealthy and the poor alike. And he beckons all to believe on him so that they might be forgiven. And it might be finished here, but it's really not. Because you know what it goes on to say? That he would be busy. That when he leaves here, he would go there and he would spend his time working on a house that we can all come into and be family, right? Preparing it for us so that when we get there, we can be where he is. Now, it's easy to paint Jesus as only having this one side to him. Concentrating on just what we want to see and not really focusing on the fullness of who and what he is. And listen, that was, this, 
that, that whole representation is a really accurate representation of Jesus. It, but it's not the full view of who he really is. Which leads us to the second view of Jesus. And possibly a more full view, a more accurate view. A Jesus that starts as the very first words that are spoken into the deep void off Genesis. Jesus is God. He, as the Apostle John states, and maybe we ignore this part sometimes unless we just really want it, existed in the beginning. Not just mere man, but God Almighty. God created everything through him, and Jesus gave life to everything that was created, and his life brought light to everyone. We see him throughout every passage, throughout every generation, and according to the book of Revelation, he will be there all the way to eternity. Jesus is God in the flesh. He is the same God that cannot and will not tolerate sin. He is righteous, and He is holy, and in Him there is no evil. He is all good and all right, and there is never a time where He is not. As much as we joke around, well, God got it wrong on this one. God never gets it wrong. Every time you say that, you impose the culture's belief on Him. Every time you say that, who do you say that I am? You're a God that sometimes gets it wrong then you're already seeing God wrong. You already have a perverted view of God. God always gets it right. He doesn't lie. His promises are sure. He is not like a man. The Bible's very strict about that. So much so that the Bible warns men not to make promises at all. God's promises, though, are always sure. Everything He says will come to pass. He is omnipotent, which is to say that his power has no limit. He is able to do anything he desires or he wishes, sheerly out of his own pleasure to do so. That's a hard one for us to fathom. He is omnipresent, which means that he is everywhere all of the time. He is in the past right now as much as he is in the future. He can see beyond your flesh, and into the recesses of your mind and even hear your thoughts as right now. He isn't fooled by our kind actions, especially when our hearts are being secretly wicked. He sees all and he knows all. He is the same God that brought judgment on wicked people throughout the entire Old Testament and destroyed his enemies by pitting them against each other. Man, we didn't even get into Isaiah, but there's this point where we get into Isaiah that's coming, right? Where he talks about the Assyrian king is boastful in pride because his nation is so strong. And God asked the Assyrian king right before he passes judgment on him, basically implying that the only reason that you are strong is because I am the hand that wields you as the sword. You have been a pawn to the things that I needed to accomplish and nothing more. This is why God asked us to pray for the government. This is why God asked us to pray for these politicians. Because the truth of the Bible is that all these men who are in power today are the pawns of God. And if they are allowed to do something, it is by the grace of God that they are allowed to do it. And if not, by His sovereign hand alone. 
The Bible says that God will one day judge us. That one day we will stand before him and there will be two things that will be said. It will either be welcome, good, and faithful servant, like I believe Billy Graham heard, or depart from me, I never knew you. One will beckon you to a place that is described as a place of holiness and of worship. And the other is described as a place of torment. Which view is yours? Do you never think about these things? Do you just see Jesus as this meek, mild lover of people? Because he is. That's true too. But that's not living in the fullness of truth. That's like I know somebody, but I don't really know them. I only know bits and pieces about them. But God didn't put this whole book together so that you can know bits and pieces. He put this book together so that you can know all of him. Because this is a God who loves. This is what love is. No secrets. Nothing's hidden. God hadn't hidden this like side where he handles the wicked and he punishes. He hadn't hid that. He's been up front with you since the beginning. Listen, both views are right. But to only have one view would be a grave error in your pursuit towards eternal hope. To only see Jesus as the grace giver and not in his fullness might just be the biggest mistake of your life. And in this way, we make Jesus to be only one-sided. He reminds me of like, you know, a type of mother. <laughs> you know, the one that no matter how you, uh, no matter how bad you hurt somebody else, or how bad you hurt your, you know, th- th- how bad they get hurt or, or hurt yourself, they just keep saying, oh, it's okay, honey. Right? You ever seen that kid who acts terrible at the, you've seen like some video where a kid acts terrible at the grocery market, and I, you know, everybody's comments immediately the same. I beat that kid. We never did like that again. Somebody needs to whip that kid. I mean, that's what they say, right? You see everybody's like, I would spank that kid till there ain't no more spank. Man, you ain't going to treat me like that. You see how some of these kids are, right? And, and they, that, that's what we think Jesus is. He's like this mom that just, yeah, they're horrible, but I love them. I'm always going to love them, and it's always going to be okay. You just keep doing it with little regard because you know that he'll just forgive you. And you just take advantage of his goodness. And there is some truth to that, but I warn you that while God is patient and the Bible is clear about that, he will not be taken advantage of. God will let you fall and fail if he thinks it would better help you. Amen. Remember, his goal is clear. That you will be where I am. That's his goal. Where you, when you, you will be where I am. Think about what Jesus tried to tell you. I'm, like, I am so making this happen. I'm going to die so that you can come be with me. And, 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 and while you're waiting on that, I'm going to go build something so that we can stay in the same place. I, that's, that's my end game. My end game is that you be with me. How much do you think he cares about this whole thing? I mean, how, how much do you think he values life on this earth? This is the God who's already like building something in heaven waiting for you. He, what he values is you. All this stuff will perish, but you he wants to preserve. Your friendship is what he wants to preserve. Your, his heart for you, his longing for your friendship, longing for relationship is what he wants to preserve. This is his goal. He doesn't look at time and death like we do. <laughs> he doesn't see death as this awful thing. I remember, I remember somebody telling me that one time. We're like, you know, uh, we're, we're all scared of dying, but at some point God gets offended. Like, what, is it so bad to be with me? Is it really so bad? Like, you're coming to me. 
No more pain. No more suffering. Friendship. It's going to be awesome. You're going to see how this whole thing plays out. You're going to see me. And the faith that you need right now to believe me will no longer be faith. It will be fact. And you will live in the assurance. I, I, you know, I've said to my wife before, I said, man, if I go to heaven, you think I'm going to worry about you? I will know the Father firsthand, face to face. I will know that I can trust him with all things. Won't be, I believe it in faith that he will do these things. No, it will be, I know. I see with my eyes I can trust him. God is a good parent. Make no mistake. God disciplines and God corrects. And God even chastises the ones he loves if he has to. And we can see all of this scripturally throughout the Old Testament. And this is why we do ourselves a great disservice by only reflecting on some portions of Scripture and not the whole book in general to see who Jesus is. You want to know who Jesus is? Read Genesis, read Exodus, read Deuteronomy, read Numbers, read Leviticus. You want to know why he existed? Read Leviticus. Go ahead, read all that. Yeah, oh, it's boring. I know it's boring, but you want to understand why he exists, why his life exists, what the mission is of God? Then you'll understand why he's so determined to go to the cross. Read Leviticus. Read about how the priests are covered up in blood all the way up to their armpits with sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice because the sin is so much. Read about it. You want to know how, how, how committed God is to this? It started in Genesis chapter 3 when he first says to the woman that I will raise up a child under your seed that will bruise the head of the serpent. From Genesis chapter 3 till the time Jesus is born, God said, I will make my promises true. You have to see the whole picture. After all, look at what plays out after this question is brought up. Jesus begins to tell them exactly what's going to happen. He tells his friends about the cross. He tells them about the mission. He tells them how he's here to provide a way for sinners to be saved. And in that moment, all his friends can see and hear is that Jesus is going to die. <coughs> and so what? Well, that he's going to die so that all men can be saved. And you know what? They don't care. Because in that moment, their flesh gets the better of them. It's called selfishness. It sounds mean, I know. Well, they were just caring for their friend. I know. Sounds harsh. But come on, you know, who would want their friend to live? Who, who would ever want their friend to go through something like that? But listen, just because the heart has a feeling here doesn't make it right. It can feel right to the heart. Isn't that funny? It can feel right to the heart and still be wrong. It, I mean, to me, it seems like a harsh reprimand. And amongst our friends, it would seem like that. Amongst friends, hey, man, I realize you don't want me to die. I, I realize that. Peter, think again. Well, no, because Peter's thinking about himself. I don't want to lose you. Peter, it's not about you, brother. It's about everybody. It's about everybody. This is God's will, that Christ would die so that men be saved and live eternally with the Father. To oppose this is to be in sin, period. And possibly worse, you're the enemy of God. Think about this next time when you say, man, I believe. When somebody says, I believe it's the will of God, then go do it. You won't see me get in the way. You know, there's a lot of pastors I've seen literally when it comes to people like, well, I'm thinking about leaving, da da da. And they're like, hey, don't leave yet, da da. Man, I'm going to tell you right now, a lot of you know this about me. I don't chase. You know why I don't chase? Because if it's the will of God, it'll happen. And then I ain't going to be the person that stumbles in the front of the will of God. 
And then you could go out and fail. And maybe you shouldn't have done it. Maybe I should have stopped you from doing it. And that's what you're going to think. My whole thing is, is if you say anything like this might be the will of God for me, that's when I get out the way. I don't stand in front of that. Last time I seen anybody stand in front of it was Peter. And Jesus' response to Peter is, get away from me, Satan. This is his best friend, folks. He didn't go, no, Peter, I don't want to hurt your feelings here. I know you just don't understand. No, man, I see that for what it is. All you care about is you. Because right now, your life makes sense because I'm right here. But you've got to learn, Peter. You've got to learn that the will of God takes precedence here. You've got to learn how big this moment is, Peter. You need to see it for what it is. That if I go, all men might come, Peter. That you're going to be with me for eternity. This is, a, this is a tiny little moment, Peter. Tiny moment. It's going to pass, and when it passes, me and you have eternity together, Peter. But if I don't do this, this is all we get, Peter. Think about this. If you never read your Bible, as most don't, then it's no wonder why so many whose lips can glorify God while their lives do not live in such a way that honors the cross of Christ. Yes, Christ offers forgiveness. Yes, Christ offers grace to all who sin and fall short of the glory, but he also asks that, that we receive his forgiveness and that, that in grace we take up our crosses and we die to our flesh, that we die to our wants, that we die to our desires, and we become born again to a new person. Listen, we're born again. That means we're the different person now. You're not born again to be the same person. That's not born again. If you said words like, I love you, Jesus, and your life never changed, and we see no change in it whatsoever, that's not born again. That's just repeating words. That's not transformational change. There's no altar where that can happen. The only altar where that can happen is when you really mean it with all of your heart, and that altar, something happens inside you, and that's the Holy Spirit coming in and cleansing you, transforming you into a new creation transformed and here's the thing you're not just transformed into anything you're transformed into christ himself it's not a random well now i'm born again i can do whatever i want no i'm born again to what to be a child of god to be jesus to be made unto the image the bible says in romans through paul that we are predestined to be what to the image of jesus christ it's funny, we have all this theology and stuff set up for predestination, but the truth, the simplicity of it is simply that. What does that look like for you? What does that look? I don't know, that's up to you, but like that has to be Jesus. How do you view Jesus? Because that's ultimately the life you'll head towards. Anything living in contrast to Christ, living like Christ, it becomes hypocritical to the world. And isn't that irony of it all that the world our world, our culture, it knows the character of Christ. That's like the weirdest thing I think about all of this, right? It knows that he is holy. The world and the culture knows that Jesus is a righteous person, that he lives in a way that's contrary to the culture. It knows that he is set apart from it. And you know what else it knows? It knows that we're supposed to be as well. So anytime the world hears someone say that they're saved, or are a Christian, it knows that we are to take upon the likeness of Christ. That's what it is to be a Christian. It is not part of a club. It is not a denomination. It is not a religion. It is to take the form or the likeness of Jesus Christ himself. 
so that they can see Jesus in the flesh in us. And when it doesn't see it, it scorns us as hypocrites. And our reputation is as such. 80% of America says they're Christian. Come on now. I've watched enough news to know that ain't the truth. Especially when half and half right now, sometimes in the whole liberal versus conservative thing. There's no way you can kill babies and be a Christian. There's just no way. There's no way you can do saying some of these things that people say and do and still be a Christian. Unless how you view Jesus is different than the Bible. And maybe the most troubling thing is that we will often hide behind our feeble views of God. Where we make him out to be a God who lets us do whatever we want simply because he loves us. And that's not true. Doesn't mean grace doesn't allow you to do it. Do not confuse grace with acceptance. So what do you believe? I mean, that's the question today for you. And it's not even my question, right? It's the one he keeps asking you every day. Charity, can we get joy? First thing this morning, Jesus asked you, who do you say that I am? And that should be like the question like every morning. If you're writing down the top of your journal, who does Jesus, who is Jesus today? Who do I say Jesus is today? Because I promise you this, how you answer that every single morning will determine how that day goes for you and how you will walk in that day. It's an important question because it shapes the way you live. If he is a big God, then you might be inclined to exercise your faith in a big way. I mean, he's a big God, right? He can do all things, right? You'd be more willing to risk everything on a God that can do anything if you really believe that. If he isn't, then you're probably going to worry a lot. You're going to stress out about your finances. You're going to live in anxiety. Just welcome to that world, right? You know what, the, you know what you, when, when anxiety and fear overtakes us, you know what happens? Well, my God's not big enough to overcome these things, so, you know, I... I don't know how we're going to make it through because, you know, that's how we view God. Well, if he's a faithful God, you might be inclined to be a giver because you trust him. He has shown himself to be true and always there in that area. And if he isn't, you might cling on to every dollar and every penny you have, always worried you'll have enough. Is he faithful? Will he do the things that he says he will do? Does he keep his promises? Now, if he's a righteous and holy God, you might take the whole take up my cross thing a bit more seriously. Just saying. Working hard to live a holy and right life by yourself, which, by the way, you never really can do by yourself. This is why you need him. You'll have to pray hard that God will transform you and your life. What you find out as you pursue righteousness and holiness is how little of it you have and how much of it you need from Jesus and how much grace you need and all these things, right? But if, if he isn't righteous and holy, then you know what? Your lifestyle is justified. Just go ahead and live however you want. Because if he's not righteous and holy, then you can pretty much do whatever you want. You don't have to change anything about yourself. I mean, after all, he's a God who gets it wrong once in a while, right? If he is a grace-giving God, you cherish it and understand why you need grace. And your response become what Jesus hopes that it is, that you will pursue a life that is devoted in love and, and to the response of the grace that you need. That's the response you're supposed to see. That's what we're supposed to gather from grace. Grace shouldn't say that I could just go do whatever I want. Grace says, you've forgiven me for wanting to do whatever I want. 
And now you're asking me to walk like you. And because you've forgiven me for having lived however I wanted, I will now live for you. And we just, we just sang the song where we talk about it. If he isn't, then you're going to live in fear. If he's not a grace-giving God, if he's not a God like that, you're going to live in fear. And you're going to be hopeless and helpless because you can't believe in a future where God is there. And I could go on and on. I mean, who do you say that he is? Because it doesn't matter who I say that he is. Right? It's not my words here. I mean, that's why we prayed right after we got through reading the scripture. Who does the scripture say that he is? And not just what we read today. What is the Bible? What is the whole Bible from the front of the cover to the back of the cover say Jesus is? That is, that is what the gift of God is through the scriptures. The scriptures is the living, breathing word of Jesus Christ. It is him. Every word of it is him. And this whole story of the Bible is not stories about random people. It's a story about him. He's trying to tell us who he is so that we can lean back on it. So that's why when we look to scriptures, well, you know, if you're feeling doubt, you need to really just read these scriptures and these are the scriptures you need to read. You know why that comforts us? Because it is the character of God. We're not building our faith up. We're building God up. And when our God is big and we start to see God as a big God, we start to walk as if God is a big God. And you know what? People that walk as if God's a big God are scary individuals. Because they walk in crazy faith. And people who walk in crazy faith, if you've known anybody like that, they kind of freak you out. I've seen some guys, you know, who are gifted financially in some areas that would do things even for them that's crazy and it has shocked me. And, and you know what else I can tell you about knowing somebody who believes God is a big God? They are contagious. I want to know them. I want to hang around people who walk in that area. Because they challenge me. Where I have fear, where I have made God small, where I have problems, where I've not lived according to what the scriptures have said in those areas. And I see somebody else walk in it, I, I just want to hang around this person. Because I want to see how they're doing that. How are they believing all that? Do they just tell themselves that all the time? Are they reading the Bible all the time? Is that where that's coming from? Where is that happening? And how can I be more like it? How can I be more like it? Who do you say that he is? I always try to, I try to live in a way that reflects Jesus in every aspect of my life. But listen, I often fail. Especially when I'm trying to do things under my own strength. But I'm always going to live in strong pursuit of Christ because I've received forgiveness and grace. And now my heartfelt response is to die to the things that I want and instead live for the things that he wants. Which, by the way, do you know what he wants? This is the easiest question, man. This is what makes me love Jesus. He wants you. He doesn't care about this. He doesn't care about fancy TV screens. He doesn't care about the music and the, and, the, and the guitars and all this stuff. He cares about us. He doesn't mind if we don't have instruments. He's okay with that. You know why? Because the voice that comes out comes out from us. And as long as it's coming from us and it's about us, Jesus loves us. Jesus died for us. Jesus prepares a place for us. And if I love or I pursue Christ to become like Christ, guess what I love now? you because he loves you that's that's how when john said you that you quoting jesus they shall know you by your love for one another 
Why, why do you have such a love for one another? Because I've lived in the same house with all girls. We don't always get along. We don't always get along. I know what it's like to have family where you're just like, uh, I think I'll be better off moving out. I know that. And, and it's hard for us. But the more I tackle Christ, the more I walk in his footsteps, I'm beckoned to love other people because it's who he loves. The more I become like him, the more I love like him. The more I give grace like him. I love the things that he loves and he loves you. I can forgive you because he forgives you and he forgives me. I, I can have grace for you because God gives me grace. And just like that, my life is changed. But so is yours. Amen? Now we're going we're gonna to worship and we got this song here at the end, Alabaster Jar, which is a timely song. When we get to that song, it's going to be the last song. I really want you to sing that. Really look at the words. Because it's about dying on the cross, man, to yourself and living for Jesus. It's a good song for today. Let's worship the Lord and let's give it all. And then we're going to close in prayer. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you that you open our ears up so that we can hear you. We can know you, and in response, we can tell others. <coughs> Lord, I pray that today as we, as we worship, as we sing these words, that the words that we say would match up with our heart. And Lord, where it doesn't, I pray for your help. I pray that you would go in and that you would do surgery on our heart making us look more like you, talk more like you, act like you, Father. It's all because of who you are. It's all because of your love and your grace that you give us that we can give it out to others. Lord, we lift you.